0: Hello there, I'm D Reddy, and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we are thrilled to welcome Janine Uzel, COO at the Wikimedia Foundation, the non-profit organization behind Wikipedia and its sister products, back to the show for her second time. As Wikipedia celebrates its 20th year, we'll chat to her about how the organization became one of the most visited websites on the internet, curated by a global network of hundreds of thousands of volunteers who've written over 55 million articles in 300 languages. For many, that represents the world's largest repository of human knowledge, but as Janine explains here, it's not without its gaps. In today's episode, we'll hear how Janine and her team are challenging what accessibility around knowledge really means her vision for achieving knowledge equity, and why it's important to question who tells your story. I've been singing that chorus from Hamilton since I spoke to Janine last week. So before I risk bursting into it again, let's head over to the studio and hear from her. Janine, we are so delighted to welcome you on the show today for your second appearance on Inside Intercom. Last year, you joined our CEO, Karen Peacock, for a fascinating panel discussion on allyship, uh, which I must say was one of my favorite conversations of last year. And today, you're back to talk with us in a little bit more depth about your own career and your work at Wikimedia. So to kick things off, would you like to share a little bit about yourself with the audience and tell us how you ended up as Global Technology Executive and COO in one of the most recognized companies in the world?
1: Wow. Well, thank you, Dee. It is an honor to be back again. I'm really excited to have a discussion with you and I just I just appreciate you all um thinking that I would have some new stories to share, which I do. Um and then having me back. So I appreciate that. I don't I don't take it for granted. Thank you again. You know, um the journey uh in my career has been one that even I could have never written. I mean, I tried to play it by the book and be a good student and study hard. And then, you know, life opened up great opportunities for me. I am, by training, a mechanical engineer. And from the very beginning, I've been very non-traditional in my career in that most MEs go into, you know, aviation and automotives and things like that. And I went right into healthcare because my commitment has always been access and leveraging technology as a tool for access. So I spent the first half of my career really focused on access to healthcare, I spent more than 16 years at GE, where I had an amazing global career and was an expat in Africa and had a chance to work around the world, bringing ultrasound and other healthcare products into the emerging market. And then I led an initiative for GE for women in technology. And in this case, I consider that theme to still resonate with access because this was access to talent, and to ensuring that our company did its best to attract and retain and promote and truly activate the talent of women as an asset in technology. And then I had an opportunity um, to transition from GE after more than 16 years. I just did something that it was really a proof point to myself that I could take The skills and the experiences that I had had and bring them into an organization and opportunity that I thought was a complete 180 in size, you know, 300,000 at GE. We have about 500 at Wiki and we're growing strong working for a, you know, kind of a bedrock old school company, which was great. And then taking that to this startup. Company that, that, you know, just turned 20 years old in January and then having a chance to be a part of building out the operations department and ensuring that we created a space that would make the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the organization that operates Wikipedia and all of its sister products. We could make the experience of the foundation operationally sound so that we could grow and ensure that the foundation and the staff and the people that drive the work that Wikipedia gives to the world, we having the same type of robust access and experience themselves. And um, so being a part of, of access to knowledge and information is something that I'm excited to be a part of. It's my third year at the foundation, and um, it speaks so much to who I am as a mission driven leader and um, with my commitment to bring equity within world-changing course, uh, causes. So, um, so yeah, that's a little bit about how I made it here. And I've had a chance to, to work for two really powerful brands, and I'm just doing my best to ensure that I use my position in places and the spaces where I go for good.
0: Yeah, it really sounds like it. You know, some of the most interesting people, I think I talk to Janine, they don't necessarily have a career that goes in a straight line, or, you know, don't take necessarily the most obvious path, which, you know, as you said yourself, you didn't. But they do often have this common thread or a common theme that runs as a kind of a through line throughout their career. And I, and I love to hear that that's something that you've always embodied and that accessibility has been such an important theme for you. And I know because I know we're going to chat loads more about that later in the chat. But you did mention that Wikimedia Foundation celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. I mean, it must be a pretty exciting time for everyone on the ground in the foundation. What do you think, having joined it in the last three years, but over that 20-year period, what do you think were the key moments that kind of defined that two-decade
1: success story? Well, I think that um, there's a few things. (laughs) One of the big pieces of what's been definitive, I think, for the foundation has been its commitment to designing this strategy for two main pieces here, and that's knowledge as a service and knowledge equity. And being able to bring those two components to the forefront are critical because they are really what is driving the next phase of who we are as a movement. And so here we are 20 years later. And so knowledge as a service, bringing the service of knowledge to the world on our website, um, on our app, however you choose to use it. And then knowledge equity, because we also recognize the, I guess the almost the, the responsibility that we have being such a powerful force for free knowledge to the world it's also a very very important commitment to ensure that that information is equitable and is a reflection of the world and so the more the more than two hundred and fifty thousand editors that work on our on our platform building an equitable experience for the world is something that uh, we've grown into so that's one of the big pieces that that 2030 vision and all the work that we're doing in the organization, in the foundation, and also in the movement to ensure that, that we get there. I think another thing that is very powerful for me uh, with regards to the 20-year the um, anniversary is something that we just introduced on February 2nd, and that's our Universal Code of Conduct. And this was introduced across Wikipedia and all of our projects. And it's, you know, I describe it as akin to the United Nations and their Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is a set of fundamental standards that provide Wikipedia's global communities with a baseline for acceptable behavior. This is very important because as a community driven, body of work and as an organization that has its goal set on equity. We need to create a space where people can be a part of editing Wikipedia, where they feel safe, where they feel accepted, where they feel that they are an added contributor so that we can ensure that we have equity on our platform. The universal code of conduct before that existed, we had a lot of different policies and standards for each project, but there was no global standard that that set the guardrail for all of our behaviors. And so it really made addressing toxic behavior much more difficult to enforce because we didn't have any uniformity. This code of conduct to me is... It shows a new level of our maturity as we turn 20. It's showing that we're looking at our power relationships in online communities and how they shouldn't be abused. It's rooted in our values of respect and civility and assuming good faith. It creates a precedent for how we address behavior, and that is going to be a door opener for communities of people. That are like, I want to be a part of this because our mission literally states that anyone in the world who wants to be a part of our movement can, be a, can, can do that. And now the Universal Code of Conduct creates a space of safety for that. And then that's going to help get us to knowledge as a service and knowledge equity. And those are two major things that I think are a big part of who we are as we're kind of walking into this 20th year of our birthday
0: so incredible to hear those two choices because I think it gives a really strong indication of where the focus is for the future for the Wikimedia Foundation. I know you're at the helm of the Foundation's strategic plan, Wikimedia 2030. So having looked back at the last two decades, what is your key ambition for the next decade?
1: So I think as I as I look ahead, this is my third year at the foundation. And so I am one of those folks that have come in, you know, right at the at the pivot point. And so as I look forward, one of the the areas that are most critical to me are, are some of exactly what I just talked about in terms of our diversity of and our equity of thought. One of the ways that we are supporting that is through our Thriving Movement. And the Thriving Movement is... The space, it's one of our key priorities that fuel knowledge as a service and knowledge equity. And there are a lot of different priorities that we're focused on in our work in the foundation. But the thriving movement says that we'll create a space where where people can be accepted regardless of gender or race or location or, or access to the internet and information. If you want to be a part of the Wikipedia community, we will ensure that you are accepted and feel safe and, and are a part of it. And so being able to to fund and support work that is relative to the thriving movement is a big part of what will drive our growth as I consider, you know, who we are as we move forward. And so when we when we are working on the way that we build our work at Wikipedia, we use OKR. So that those are Outcomes and then all of the key results that that drive it. That's how we measure our our work within the organization. As we're building our our funding plan for all of the work that we do, the thriving movement is a key, a key part of that work. And ensuring that we support and facilitate and grow the movement in a space where people feel most accepted and healthy is where we're focusing. That's going to help us grow. In the languages and it's going to help us grow in the volume of content. And it's also going to help us ensure that a larger percentage of the world is telling the world story.
0: Amazing. And that brings us really neatly to my next question, Janine. One of the reasons I got back in touch with you was this fantastic medium piece that you wrote, Who Tells Your Story on Wikipedia? And you talk in that piece and don't worry, I will link to it in the show notes. You talk in in some detail about your family background and the wonderful culture of storytelling that you grew up with. So would you like to share a little bit
1: of that with the audience here? Sure. So I love storytelling. It's a big part of my life. I think I say in the piece that my father, was a great storyteller. And he was. And, um, you know, I, I am happy to admit that, you know, as I grow older, my father is is deceased now, but some of his stories were true and some of them were not, but that's what made them all the more entertaining. Uh, some things I I'm learning now, I'm like, oh, that's not really true. But, you know, he had a way of weaving the most wonderful ways to, to share information. But for me, and also even for the culture that I'm a part of as an African-American, storytelling is how we, how we learn about who we are. It's a, it's a source of pride. I, I sit at my Aunt Laura's dining room table in her home in New Jersey, and she tells me things about people that I don't know, that I wish I knew, and even people that I did know, like my father, she is one of the only people that have known my father longer, even than my mother, because she grew up in the same town as him and married his brother. And so she's known my father her entire life. And so she can share things with me about my father that I didn't get to know, even though I had my father as a part of my life, even through into my 40s. But um, I I just soaked up soaked up all these great stories. My father and his brother were recording artists, and a part I've of the great.
0: Listened, I've listened. Have to you? Some of the- yeah, fantastic stuff.
1: Yeah, so there's there's quite a controversy, and their hit song is is called "Smoky Places," and um, you know it's a bit of a, it's a song about some infidelity, and uh, but I grew up <laughs> singing this song, and I didn't know that it was about lovers meeting in the night. I just knew that. That was a song I grew up with. I knew how to play it on the piano and I knew how to sing it. And, uh, but, um, you know, he uh, the great migrations is a big part of our culture as as black people. Right. And coming from the south and slavery and moving north. And some of us moved to California and Philadelphia, New Jersey, Florida. My family, you know, my father moved to New Jersey. That's where he, where he met my mom. And so these types of stories, I, I know the Great Migration, but when I hear my aunt Laura tell me about the train ride that she took when you know my uncles and my father they went before them ahead of them and then they sent for the family and how they got on the train and getting on the train from North Carolina and crossing the Mason-Dixie line and coming up north and getting off of that train and landing in the middle of this Like hearing her stories that's my experience of the great migration that is so different than what's written on our Wikipedia page, which is a great historical fact. But now I have my own experience with it as well. And, and so the family tradition of storytelling is something that uh, I love for myself and what I can share with my nieces and nephews and others. And um, that's so important to me. Even uh, if you never write a Wikipedia page, if you're never a part of our community, I hope that even people that listen to this will be inspired to go and share a story with someone, maybe in their family or, or in, their, in their community, that helps keep a tradition moving forward.
0: Yeah, you know, that that was a part of your piece that really resonated with me. You know, I think there's a similar culture of storytelling and music in Ireland, certainly. And, you know, for, for many centuries, the only history that you would read in books was the history of the colonizers, was, you know, the British people that had come into Ireland or, you know, had been born there, but considered themselves British. And it was only in the last century that, that Irish history and, and culture began to be written down or celebrated so yeah you know i i it's just fascinating to me how something like wikipedia can really become a resource for those unwritten histories that may have been forgotten about for some you know some fairly depressing reasons, you know, there's a line in your, in your piece that says this was history, but it had never been written down, you know, and I think I I studied history. And so often we hear the expression history is written by the victors, but I do wonder, is it a fairer assessment nowadays to say that in fact, history is
1: written by the privileged? Ah, wow. That, that hits me right in the gut because, you know, when truth stares you in the face, it's, It's both inspirational and then sometimes it makes people pretty angry. But I I don't Mm -hmm. disagree with that because we know that knowledge, the history of knowledge and information is that it's in the hands, it's been in the hands of the privileged. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes, at least what has been in the past, the information that you would be exposed to is exactly what people wanted you to know. And it had their bias completely surrounding it. Even um, historically, in, as slaves in African-American history, slaves were given a different Bible than, than their slave owners because the slaves Bible was very much stories of, of submission and control to keep wow. them from having an experience of freedom. So there, there's an actual slave Bible. And much of the content of the actual Holy Bible is taken out of that because it is not meant for them to understand the capacity of who they can be as people who serve a great and mighty God. And that the thing about, about stories and, and knowledge is that people have a perspective about someone or something that they don't know anything about. They may have a perspective based on what they see on television or what they've heard from other people or what they read on Wikipedia, but that's not the only experience. And when those stories are not shared, then the things that may be written by those that have privilege, whether it's privilege to information, privilege to access to the internet, privilege to the ability to write as opposed to verbally share a story. There are so many things that dominate in privilege. And if you have that and it gives you access to be able to communicate, privilege to be a part of a community where you feel safe and welcome versus, hey, I still want to be a part of a community, but I don't feel safe here. So I'm not going to do it. Anything that grants you access to privilege where you then have the ability to disseminate knowledge and information to people that has bias in it, or that is just not a complete story, causes other people to gain a perspective of someone that is incomplete. And so then you have a perspective about me, or I have a perspective about you, your people, your culture that is incomplete. And that is what I mean when I say that Access is so important. Ensuring that we create an access for everyone to be able to communicate, to share. You have to have access to health, access to knowledge, access to education. This is what creates a complete life. And. In all of my world travels, in all of the experiences that I've been fortunate to have as a girl whose father got on a train and came up from North Carolina, sang some songs, became a laborer, put his children through college, the lineage of who I am as I think about my ancestors to the generations that I can trace us to. What I do know is everywhere I've been in the world, There is a uniform thread of what people are looking for, and it is just equity. It is just to be seen, to be heard, and to be able to have an experience that is equal to what others have. And I just believe so passionately and sincerely. And that's kind of what I talk about in the stories that I share. And that's certainly something that I'm proud of as I learn more and more about who I am as a daughter um, and a member of the family that I'm a part of.
2: Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but For every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big, stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode.
0: You talk a little bit about accessibility there, Janine. You know, I think before our conversation and before reading your piece, to me, accessibility, when we think about knowledge was access to be able to read something or to to listen to something i never really thought about it in terms of access to be able to write something, to be able to share something. And I think that kind of flips it on its head in a little bit in how we traditionally think about it. You know, one of the most powerful aspects of Wikipedia to me as an outside observer has always been that sheer volume of knowledge that's accessible to me at my fingertips. You know, the ability to delve deeper into every topic you know a person an event you know I could be watching a film and I'll often you know look up a a character that's only on screen for a couple of minutes and then I find myself in a Wikipedia hole where I've clicked blue link after blue link after blue link Um, and I suddenly know you know heaps about a family that was, you know, that's been dead for two for two centuries, because I'm always interested in the people involved. We but, call that the rabbit hole, by the way. The in, rabbit in this, hole. Okay,
1: yes, it's easy to fall down it.
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm definitely a rabbit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've noted in your piece that we've been talking about that there are some areas of Wikipedia that don't have many of those blue links or much coverage at all, which means that in this sort of sum total of current knowledge as we think about it, there are gaps. And I'd love to know why you think these gaps exist and why they
1: exist in the areas that they do. Well, there are gaps. Wikipedia, one, we're not perfect. Hmm. Also, hmm. Wikipedia is a tertiary source. And so what I mean by that is it's, it's one of many resources on any given topic. So what's important is that the information on Wikipedia is only as strong as the citations that support it. And that's why you'll often hear Wikipedians say, they'll make a statement and then they'll say citation needed. So this is truth, but where's the citation to back it up? It's also what lends so much validation to the stories. And the content on Wikipedia, because the likelihood of the the truth being told is backed up by the citations and the newsworthiness. So we like to say, if it happens in the world, it happens on Wikipedia. Now, the challenge of that is people will say, well, this is critically important. Why is there no Wikipedia page on it? This person is encyclopedic. They've done, you know, they're Nobel Prize winners or otherwise. Why are there no Wikipedia pages on them? One, because there is a bias in, in, that we have to do to close the gap, particularly as it relates to women and the content of women on Wikipedia. There's no one-size-fits-all method to improve the diversity, and that presents a serious challenge. So currently right now, only about 18% of the biographies on English Wikipedia are about women. And we know that that is not reflective of the percentage of women in the world, correct? And so we've seen gender disparity. There would be more stories about women if more women felt like they could be a part of the community, right? This goes back to what I talked about earlier about our universal code of conduct and creating a place that is safe and thriving and acceptable, so for the past several years, you know, only about 10 or 11% of our contributors about across all of the projects identify as women. Last year in 2020, we did see this number jump to about 15%. And this is, this is exciting and it's wonderful because we are, we're trending in the right direction. And, and based on our research, the reason we're seeing this increase, we're seeing this increase in gender, mostly among contributors that live in Africa the Americas, both Latin America and Northern America in Oceania. So it's this is exciting and this is important because editing Wikipedia is an activity that's been dominated by men. And so we need more community organizers to be women. We need leaders within our movement to be more diverse so that we can create a space that shifts the structures of our power, even in our movement, so that they're more representative of the world. Another thing that I want to say is that it's back to Wikipedia being a tertiary source. And that is that as much as we also must do our part on Wikipedia to ensure that we have a more diverse community of people, it's very important that other media sources in the world tell the stories that support what goes on Wikipedia as well. And so when we write a story about someone, we need the news To back up the validation of that story. And so if there were more stories in the news about women, women in technology, women in STEM, women in medicine, women in sports, if the news wrote more of those stories, if if our media sources spent more time elevating the stories of women, then that would help drive content to Wikipedia as well. And so it's it's a community effort, both on Wikipedia and in, in the world as well.
0: I love it. You know, it almost sounds like you're future-proofing history to a certain extent, because, you know, this is such a a massive resource. But as you say, it is tertiary and it it, it requires these other sources to back it up. And, you know, g- going back into the past, they don't always exist. But with the work that you're doing, you can make sure that in the future they do. Presumably, though, this isn't just something that's affected for women. You know, I, I read that your survey data indicates that fewer than one percent of your editor base in the U.S. identify as black or African-American. So, so is it a case that there's multiple areas where Wikipedia can be a force for good in, in rewriting different groups back into history?
1: That's right. Less than 1% of our community identify as Black. I already mentioned that, you know, maybe only around 15% at this point are identifying as women. This is, um, you know, this, is, this affects so many things it affects the content, right? Because that means that who is writing the story of black people, not black people, which means there is a gap. There's a gap in accuracy, information, experience. Someone can write a story about a black person and it might have some accuracy and detail but definitely not the fullness of the the story and and what it means to live out and experience and that 's just that 's with any culture that 's you writing about Ireland versus me who i 've been there, but it 's not my my true culture and um, so the there 's a gap in the groups of people and, and it goes back to what I talked about in creating you know a movement where people feel safe and welcome and, and this is access and, and equity. It's also ensuring that our product delivers a user experience that makes it easy for people to participate because being a part of Wikipedia isn't always writing a complete full article from start to finish. You start, you know, members of the community taught me from the very, from the time that I joined, they're like, Janine, start somewhere. Start with editing. Vocabulary, uh, ensuring that you know just the pages are set up well. You know, you start with um, a small edit here and a small edit there, and so that's what starts to build you as a Wikipedia. Access to be able to do that from your mobile phone if you don't have a laptop, or in various languages if you're if English isn't your your primary language. So these are things that that deter other people from being a part of our community. Ensuring that if you want to write about a subject, Bollywood is your your favorite movie, cinematic experience. And every time you write a story about Bollywood, it's rejected by our community because to someone in another part of the world, that's not important. That means you're not going to to try and that's going to reduce the people of that culture that that will write about it. In my opinion, my absolute opinion is that the most important thing that we can do. And there are people that will disagree with me because there are people that will say the more readers we have, the more editors we have, and that's how we build content on Wikipedia. I say the more equitable access we create to be a part of the Wikipedia community, the more editors, the more readers, the more content. But until we start to grow what it looks like to be even a part of this group of people, we could hit a wall in terms of how we're able to grow our work. And to me, they're interlaced. And if we don't continue to pay attention to this, fortunately we, we are, we absolutely are. Then we will reap, you know, a consequence because we, we deliver a product that looks like the world. We have to look like the world.
0: Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting to me there is the point of just because something isn't interesting to you doesn't mean it's not of interest to other people. It actually reminds me of when I was in university and a male academic kind of chiding me for my areas of interest when I was studying because I I was always more taken with the kind of social side of things. And he actually called it women's history and told Mm -hmm. me that it would hold me back. So yeah, it's great to see all types of interests being embraced by the wikimedia foundation you know you've referenced knowledge equity a number of times janine do you have a, a kind of a neat
1: description of what that means to you what does knowledge equity mean to me it means that it has it has um, i guess two sides to the meaning on the one hand it means that everyone has a fair opportunity to receive, identify, go after, have access to knowledge. If I need to know something, if I need information, knowledge is power. I have the ability to gain that information, which makes me empowered. So my ability to have uh, an equitable way to get information, not just information that is pushed to me, but information that I want to pull. Right. The other side of that is that that information is an unbiased truth based on a diverse collaborative set of information. And so the truth that is the information that is being pushed to me and the information that I go after is not rooted in a biased perspective, but it is truth because of the collaborative information that validates his truth. So knowledge equity to me in in plain speak is I need to know something and I can find out what I need to know. And what I find out is truth because there are multiple sources that confirm that it is.
0: I love that. And, you know, how can we apply then those same principles that you're looking at in the Wikimedia Foundation around knowledge equity. how can how can other content creators apply those principles? you know and that might be whether they're you know coming from a tech perspective, from the media who you've alluded to earlier, but also academia as well. how can how can these types of content creators contribute contribute towards knowledge
1: equity? so, One of the things that I believe most strongly, in, I I think it's, it's coming across here is the diversity of teams and that is race, gender, culture, capacity, capability, regions of the world, anything that makes up diversity, a diversity of teaming will create a diversity of thought will create a diversity of experience, age, you know, sports activities, like livelihood, anything that you can think of. The multi, the more sources that you have generating information, the better, in my opinion, that experience is going to be for the person that's receiving it. And so when you say, how can other people do this? Like, and you gave the example of academia, you know, any anyone that's in a room creating a product or a curriculum, a training a course information an idea and everyone in the room looks the same or everyone in the room has the same experience grew up in the same space is of the same economic background or status then you already have a biased component of work that is not equitable. but when you begin to look across the spectrum and and pull in the like just a rainbow, of, of people, then that's how you can be a part of it. And so when you're in a position to hire, when you're in a position to build a team, when you're in a position to create an experience for people, you have to say, I need a diverse lens in order to be able to create that. And to me, if you don't look at it like that, and you think that the construct of your own mind is more than enough, then I believe that that is a misuse of power. And it's, it's very much a privileged way of thinking, which I do not think will get us to where we need to be for knowledge equity.
0: Yeah, because, you know, what you're what you're talking about there is something I think that's symptomatic of of a trend we see or a problem that we see across the world of tech and design, you know, in as much as collective knowledge might lack diversity of perspective, so does data, so does design, so does coding, STEM, and so many areas that are at the heart of driving new technologies and new ways of life. I think, you know, we've seen in the last 10 years in particular, that some of the impacts of this are annoying. But some of them are actually really dangerous for people and for communities. So when, at what point in your career, Janine, did you first really become aware of that impact, of
1: the, that, this lack of diversity? Oh, I think that um, I learned it and saw it early in my life. In my career, I began to see it more as I started to lead projects more, even as, a, as an engineer. I, mean, I started out, um, like I said, on the technology side, I did some coding. I was on the product side. But I, th- I think the, the, the experience I want to share is one where I had the opportunity to do this and I didn't do it as well, which is why I've learned from a mistake. And that is in the area of when we were bringing um, handheld ultrasound as a product during my my time at GE into the world. And this product had been designed to be portable, to identify just key key symptoms in in a woman's womb so that we could ensure um, healthy delivery in adjudicated environments. But when we first started doing this work, we had in our own mind what we thought a great product could be for the world. And we did use some diversity in our engineering team and otherwise, but when we finally got it right, it was when we introduced the International Midwives Association to work with us, when we received a a knowledge from the World Health Organization and the United Nations. It took the private sector and the nonprofit sector and the international development sector and midwives and engineers all coming together to bring this product, which is solar powered and portable and easy to use and and all of these things that we could create to deliver this product to the world. It wasn't a group of engineers at a research center in upstate New York, solely alone. And that is a lesson that I'll, I'll never forget because I can, in my mind, as I'm speaking to you, picture, as I close my eyes, I can picture what the community of people that were a part of this, what they looked like and how each one of them along the journey made this product what it is, which has an impact on women and children around the world to this day. And that's, that's what makes a difference.
0: Wow. And then for, I mean, for business leaders listening then, I guess that's the answer to how they can change in their own organization.
1: It is. And so I say it is because who you hire is a process. So it's where you hire from, who you send, you know, what does the hiring team look like? You're not going to attract. If you send one standard look of a person out to attract diverse hires, you're not going to get it. You have to send people like them. (laughs) What are you willing to do in your organization in order to ensure that the people that you're hiring that are different than the standard of what you built up in that organization so that they feel welcome and, you know, that they'll be promoted and supported with their ideas. So what is your diversity and inclusion community look like and, and your, what, are, what are your policies and practices and visions for what that means? So it's not just saying, OK, fine, I'll, I'll hire a bunch of people and we'll have diverse teams. No, because then when they get on the team, are you listening to them? Are you are you incorporating their thoughts? Are you practicing partnership or are you practicing privilege? And so it's ensuring that you're accommodating and accepting. I could say to you that, oh, it was just me inviting this diverse group of people into the room. No, it was me actually listening to what different cultures and groups of people from an asha worker to a midwife to a young student to, you know, someone from the development world that was very different than the the private sector world, as well as the board and profitability. You know, there were so many different components of thought that needed to be considered in that work. I say the same to business owners today. You'll need to be open To a variety of thoughts and then filter in a way that still drives to the goal and the mission of your organization. But there is power when you put a community of people together to solve the world's toughest problems. And you can do that and still do good. You can still be profitable. You can still have impact. And I believe that organizations and communities and people in the world are better as a result of it. And I do not believe that that is purely aspirational i absolutely believe it is possible amazing
0: now we're nearly out of time janine so but before we finish up one question we love to ask people on the podcast is whether there's someone in their discipline that they aspire to or are just inspired by
1: oh i'm inspired by by a lot of people but i think if there's just one I think that I will lend with, I'll land with Joy Olamwini. She is a Ghanaian-American digital activist. She's a part of the MIT, which is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, their media lab. She founded the Algorithmic Justice League, which is a community of people and work that are focused on bias in technology, Bias in artificial intelligence and the impact that these this bias has on diverse communities, which is often tragic. She's done just great documentaries, and she's recently been received a lot of awards for for her great work. But she is a person that identified bias in code and um, started putting a white piece of paper, like a mask over her face so that she could be identified in coding. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. You'd have to read more about her. But Joy Winnie is someone that I admire. She is young and bold and brave. And she is staring injustice in the face and using her, her keyboard and her technology for good. And um, she's someone that I truly admire.
0: Wow, she sounds incredible and I really can't wait to check out some of her work and some of her writings and we'll certainly also link to that in the show notes for anybody who's interested to hear more and who wouldn't be after that description. Um, Lastly, Janine, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your work?
1: Oh, I would love if they would check me out on Twitter at Janine Uzel. J-A-N-E-E-N-U-Z-Z-E-L-L. The only one there. And um, you can also follow me on LinkedIn the same way, but would love to, to follow you know, some of my day-to-day commentary about diversity, tech, Wikipedia, and the world on Twitter. That'd be great
0: as someone who is already a follower, I can heartily recommend that. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I just appreciate you allowing me to be so expressive and and to share some of my passions. Uh, I hope we'll stay in touch and I wish you well. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed
0: our conversation with Janine. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Scale by Intercom for you. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.